Welcome to our podcast series from the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. I'm Lori Glover, and today I'm here with Professor Manolis Kallis, who heads the Computational Biology Group at MIT CSEL. Manolis, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Lori, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about your area of research and some of the most compelling challenges that you're working on? Uh, it's not a small goal. What we're trying to do is basically understand the basis of human disease, understand the function of every nucleotide in the genome, in every one of your cell types, how that function is encoded, and what causes that function to change in human disease. And that basically means we're trying to understand the language of DNA, which is kind of cool for someone who grew up in Greece, in France, you know, uh, mm. speaks three languages with my kids at home. Uh, but I, I feel like I speak even more languages with my collaborators because we have to speak biology. We have to speak computer science. We have to wear many hats. Think like an engineer. Think like a scientist, like a doctor. Think like a patient. Think like a biologist, like a computer scientist. So our work is extremely interdisciplinary. And again, that's part of the hats. All of the other hats is blending that with a teaching environment mm -hmm. where we're working closely with students. We're mentoring them. We're seeing them grow scientifically. We're seeing them mature as scientists. We're seeing them flourish as human beings. We're, we're seeing them grow and learn how to share, how to collaborate, how to understand each other's needs. So not unlike how I'm watching my kids grow up and learn how to share and <laughs> how to collaborate at home. And, uh, and that, again, is just one aspect. And again, working with you, we have to blend that with entrepreneurships, with startups, with company collaborators, mm -hmm. with industry, with hospitals, and taking our research to the world. And that's why I'm so excited to be here and to be part of this podcast. And at the same time, we're working with doctors, with hospitals, with clinics, with health centers, trying to really have a practical impact to understand and address the needs that they have. And of course, blend all that with understanding patients and empowering them with knowledge about their own genome, prognosis, diagnosis, biomarkers, wearables. So it's a very complete picture that spans the scientific, the educational, and of course, the entrepreneurial and the interpersonal. Wow, that's, that's broad and amazing. I like that analogy to it as a language as well. Um, you are a computer scientist, and how is the biology really blended in with computer science? I like to answer the question exactly the opposite way. How could we possibly do biology without computer science? Okay. <laughs> Namely, uh, DNA is a programming language. It's not just about, oh, there's lots of data. At the foundation of computational biology lies the fact that there's a programming code in there that all of our cells are running in order to understand how to interact with the environment, in order to translate our genetic makeup oh. into biological functions. So what we're trying to do with computational biology is extremely natural. It's basically understand the language of DNA, the programming language of DNA, mm -hmm. and understand how mutations in this language, if I take out a go-to statement or a you know, function call or a right. variable, how is that going to affect the overall system? We're trying to understand the circuitry of every cell type, how every single control element is connected to every single gene, how the genes are turned on and off, how that varies from cell type to cell type. There's no way biology would function without computer science. Oh, that's it's not just that it's an aberration. It's the most natural way <coughs> of, thing, of, of doing things. And part of that is understanding how to, number one, of course, integrate vast, vast data sets that are just impossible with humans alone. Mm -hmm. And number two, even understanding and thinking like a computer scientist, what type of data should I even gather? What is the okay. next data set that I should go and get? So despite being a computer science department and a computer science lab, mm -hmm. a big chunk of my team is actually experimental. We go out and gather massive amounts of data. We are now gathering perhaps the largest collection of single cell data on the human brain in the world wow. across dozens of disorders. We're basically uh, looking at cognitive, psychiatric, neurodegenerative disorders, and we have more than a thousand different brain samples that we have now profiled at the single cell level. So yes, it is a computer science lab. Yes, computer science is central to all this. Mm -hmm. But also, we have a vast, vast effort on the experimental side to both gather data sets for integration, mm -hmm. but to also generate validation for our predictions. In my view, it's impossible to do it any other way than to look at disease in a holistic kind of fashion. 
And in, in the same way that DNA unified biology, I think DNA will unify disease. Interesting. Because being able to understand the commonalities in that molecular function, mm-hmm. we're kind of solving the same problem all over again in every single disease department right now. Right. And I think this makes no sense. Right. It makes much more sense to say, we're going to have a department that seeks to understand the human epigenome, a department that seeks to understand the regulatory circuitry. And now that department will be cross-cutting and applied to many different disorders. And if you look at how hospitals are organized and how pharmaceutical industries are organized, there's you know a huge separation between diseases, and these departments are not talking to each other. Right. When, in fact, we have so much to learn by looking at many disorders. And I think that's one of the strengths of our group, the fact that we have so many collaborators across metabolic, immune, psychiatric, mm-hmm. neurodegenerative, uh, cancer. Um, there's just so much to learn that we are learning in one area and that we're then applying in a completely different area. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still very naive about sort of what really truly underlines, underlies all these different conditions. Yeah. Just a few years ago, we, we basically were looking at the genetic variants underlying Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Everyone was expecting to see them light up in brain. No, they light up in the immune system instead. So there's a set of immune cells that make up a small fraction of our brain and that's where the vast majority of the genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's disease appears to be acting. Oh, wow. So that changes, mm-hmm. you know, our view. And, and suddenly you need immunologists yeah. to try to understand brain disorders. And the same thing with cancer and the same thing with metabolic disease. Every single one of those, we're learning just how much we were ignoring mm-hmm. about the true molecular basis of the pathophysiology of the disease. Wow. That is a really interesting approach. And certainly when you look at all the diseases and, and kind of looking at that commonality, that's really um, could be game-changing. Um, the goal of your research, if you can kind of talk a little bit about your vision, kind of where you'd <clears throat> like your research to go. So the goal of our field, and it's a very lofty goal, is to really, number one, understand the molecular basis of disease, understand, you know, the human genome, and, and dramatically transform the therapeutic landscape. So basically truly enable, for the first time, a rational approach to drug development, and ultimately transform human health, improve the human condition, understand our body better, and perhaps even more importantly, understand our brain better. Human psychology, motivation, depression, aging, neurodegeneration, psychiatric disorders. We have not even begun to understand how our brain can affect our body. If you look at the placebo effect, Mm -hmm. this is the most dramatic evidence that if the brain thinks that it's getting better, it actually makes the body better. Hmm. So, you know, you take a little sugar pill and suddenly you're, you know, beating your cancer, you're beating your immune disorder, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's because of all these interconnections mm-hmm. between our brain and its ability to sort of actually control our body. Mm. And I think that, uh, yes, we've come a long way and it's an extremely complex world. But despite our still rudimentary understanding of the human brain and its function, We've accomplished so much. If we now understand this brain better, if we can feed it what it really needs to succeed and what it needs to keep our body healthy and to even keep our mind at ease, I think that we we can have such a dramatically transformed, not just healthcare system, but society Mm -hmm. by better understanding both the human body and the human brain and their interconnection. Yeah, that mind-body connection. That's great. So in your lab, what are some of your most recent discoveries? So we work on many areas. We work in immune, cancer, metabolic, brain. So we've had a series of papers that are basically using this holistic approach that I'm mentioning of sort of large-scale data integration, profiling samples across different data modalities, understanding the genetic differences, understanding the epigenomic differences, understanding how gene expression changes, understanding at the single cell level how uh, complex tissues are in fact made up of you know, a diversity of small parts and the variation in those. And that has led to insights in many different areas. Uh, the most recent one is uh, a paper that we just published on the single cell profiling of the human retina. So for the first time, we actually were able to look at thousands of cells, individual cells from the human retina, and understand what are the genes that are active in each of those cells. And we were then able to use this information to go back at the genetics of age-related macular degeneration, which is actually one of the disorders that, have a genet- that I have a genetic predisposition for, and then look at where are those genetic variants acting 
What genes are they affecting? What cell types within the human retina are they affecting? Just a few months ago, we had a paper in Nature looking at the first single cell dissection of Alzheimer's disease, looking at 80,000 different cells across 48 individuals to basically understand how are men different from women before Alzheimer's? How are men different from women after Alzheimer's? How is each one of our cell types responding to Alzheimer's? And which of those changes are likely to be causal and underlying Alzheimer's? One of the dramatic surprises there was that oligodendrocytes, which are the cells that coat the neurons mm -hmm. to make electric transductions more immune to perturbation, mm -hmm. that myelinate these neurons, these cells turn out to be dramatically different between men and women after Alzheimer's disease. So the men are able to upregulate these myelination processes and protect their neurons, whereas women are not able to do that. So wow. our prediction from the single cell data was that if we went back to the pathology information and we looked at the white matter loss mm -hmm. between men and women, that it would be much more dramatic in women. Hmm. So using data that was decades old, we saw that there was a dramatic difference between the two that just had never been noted in the literature. Interesting. So that basically sh showcases this very naive understanding that we have right now of right. all of these disorders and how this massive amount of data can allow us to really take a rational approach and understand those. In metabolism, <coughs> just a few years ago, we basically showed how uh, there's, a, there's a switch within our fat cells that switches between storing fat and burning fat. Mm -hmm. And that was just simply not recognized before. There's two master regulators of metabolism that were just previously completely unknown. And that, again, changes the way that we see the equation of nutrition. It's not just energy in, energy out. It's not just what you eat and what you, whether you exercise or not, what you burn. It's really also what is the energy lost in any kind of thermodynamic system. There's oh, three parts. Right. Energy in, energy out, energy lost. Mm -hmm. How do you lose energy? As heat. Turns out that within our fat cells, there's a switch that controls thermogenesis, the generation of heat. And that's actually a switch that our cells can turn on to burn heat. Oh. And that, in fact, uh, underlies the strongest genetic association with obesity. Understanding that opens up new therapeutics, new yeah. approaches for now manipulating that pathway. Oh, interesting. In cancer, in a, in a paper that we're just submitting this week, we were able to see, show that the circulating blood contains these small vesicles called exosomes mm -hmm. that within them carry RNA from diverse cells across the body. By looking within the blood, we are now able to predict not only how is the cancer doing in a tissue that is inaccessible, mm -hmm. but also which patients will actually respond to immunotherapy and which ones will not. And that can have dramatic implications for the ability to combat disease. Mm -hmm. So, again, across all these areas, it's always the same principle. Large-scale data integration, collaboration with the best experimental scientists, validation, and then dissemination of the results for the whole community. Can you walk me through an example of the impact a gene variation has on disease and how your work can impact our understanding and treatment of that disease? So, as I mentioned earlier, <coughs> for this metabolic switch underlying obesity, in 2007, the community was surprised and shocked to find that genetic variants were discovered that underlie obesity. Because up until then, basically people were just, I don't know, blaming what you're eating and blaming whether you're exercising or not. But what, what, what the community found that was that there was one locus in FTO, a mm -hmm. gene that was then renamed fat and obesity associated, where a dramatic association with obesity was discovered. So suddenly it meant that there's a genetic basis, mm -hmm. that it's not just your fault and your choices, but there's something in your body that mm -hmm. changes. And the whole community focused on this one gene, FTO, that was sitting square on top of the association. Mm -hmm. And for more than a decade, there was just this dramatic focus on understanding that function of that gene. And a huge amount was learned about that gene and all the processes it's involved in, but what we showed in 2015 is that this gene, in fact, probably has nothing to do with obesity. That the true targets are sitting 1.2 million nucleotides away from that gene. That what these genetic variants that are associated with obesity are doing are not 
changing the function of that gene. Mm-hmm. That gene is unchanged. Its expression is unchanged, and its protein sequence and its protein function is unchanged with those genetic variants. What's happening instead is that those genetic differences that are sitting inside the FTO gene mm-hmm. are controlling IRX3 and IRX5, two genes that are sitting 1.2 million nucleotides away and 600,000 nucleotides away. Oh, wow. And it turns out that those genes are the real culprits, which are then controlling this process of thermogenesis. And those genes have just never been associated with either obesity or thermogenesis before. And now they're at the core of a whole new program for targeting these genes to manipulate human body composition. Got it. For where and how do you use your calories? Do you burn them? Do you store them? And mm-hmm. that decision is made by those genes. Hmm. So what we showed is that you can trace this large region of an association that contains 89 common genetic variants across 10,000 nucleotides into a single nucleotide. So we could find that a single letter change can actually switch between lean and obese phenotypes. And we use CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing to go in and change that one nucleotide from a C to a T and mm-hmm. from a T to a C. And what we found is that if you take primary fat cells from a risk individual mm-hmm. who's unable to burn calories in their fat cells mm-hmm. and you fix that one nucleotide, their cells are now able to completely burn those calories as if they were completely healthy. Wow. So their therapeutic implications huge. are huge. Huge. Because it basically means that we can have three interventions. Of course, everybody should eat less. Of course, everybody should exercise more. But at the same time, we can control that last switch, that mm-hmm. last knob of how many calories do you actually burn inside your fat cells. Wow. Uh, that will be incredibly helpful. Um, I, I could certainly use some of that. No, not you, but I mean, for the world. I mean, think of the surgeries and things that people go through and that all yeah. the health uh, you know, effects also that are associated with obesity. To be able to have a, a health, more healthier approach to that, that is a fantastic Our advantage. society is plagued by obesity right now. I mean, the U.S., <laughs> but also the whole world is... I mean, obesity rates are just climbing everywhere. And it's not just affecting your body. It's affecting your mind. It's affecting your self-esteem. It's affecting, your the, you know, so many different other diseases mm-hmm. get so much worse with yeah. more weight. Oh, absolutely. And if we're able to sort of help these people not only exercise and eat more healthy, but mm. also therapeutically help their own metabolism, yeah, it would be just transformative. Yeah with societal impact. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. So um, talking about uh, kind of the biggest challenges that you're facing, and one of the things that as you're talking is just occurring to me is all this data and the privacy laws and getting access to what you actually need. Um, I'm sure that's got to be a challenge too, right? So for more than 20 years, uh, I've struggled with this. We've basically reached out to clinics that want us to analyze their data. Yeah. And we are, we want to analyze their data, but there's months and months and sometimes years of paperwork to be done. And one of the things that we're doing right now is actually uh, trying to overcome this by uh, a new startup that we've started, Secure AI Labs uh, Sale, okay. that basically is trying to make data sharing so much more seamless and so much easier. Every hospital is constrained to not bring the data of the patients outside, Mm -hmm. which basically makes it very hard to analyze data in silos because every one of those hospitals has only so few patients that we're just statistically underpowered to really discover these associations. So what we're trying to do in Secure AI Labs is enable the movement of computation rather than the movement of data. So what we're basically doing is enabling with both a hardware and a software solution the complete security and privacy of all these data sets, and then computation, which is written by third parties, Mm -hmm. to then be trusted and checked at every point of the way about exactly what types of operations it can actually do on those data, and then go and gather snippets of analysis. Without the patient data ever leaving the hospital, you can have bits of integrative knowledge Mm -hmm. that spans across many patients from that 
hospital, mm -hmm. which can then be leveraged and utilized and integrated across many, many different hospitals. That's, that's so that's one of the challenges you yeah. mentioned in data sharing. Mm -hmm. But the, the, you know, the, the discovery challenge that we have is not just about, about data, it's every part of the way. So basically profiling, analyzing, discovering, validating, every single one of those aspects mm -hmm. has dramatic challenges. And I think um, that's what our everyday job is about. How do we basically make every one of those components easier? Yeah, that's great. So most people are familiar with computer science and biology as separate disciplines. We talk about computational biology and we hear a lot today about personal medicine and precision medicine. Can you talk about how computational biology applies to those areas? Computational biology applies absolutely to both and thanks for bo mentioning both areas because people very often confuse the two. So in my view, Precision medicine is really what I've been describing, basically being able to sort of take these 3.2 billion nucleotides in the human genome and say, which one do I have to change to fix that process? And it doesn't get more precise than that, basically being able to know what cell type to act in, what nucleotide to change, and exactly what to measure. Basically, what are the upstream control mm -hmm. regulators? What are the control regions? What are the downstream target genes? And what are the processes that are affected by that? So in my view, that's precision medicine. Instead of just throwing a bazooka at the disease, mm. you're going in with a guerrilla team that says, this is the nucleotide that we're going to change, and this is the one gene that we're going to affect, and this is the one cell type in the one tissue mm. that we're going to manipulate. So that's precision medicine. Precision medicine is being able to, instead of saying, take an aspirin, say, let's change this one thing. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of medicine has been affecting these dramatic processes, and that's why there's all these side effects with so many different you know, uh, pills. And especially as uh, individuals age, you basically have dozens of pills, and their interactions are completely detrimental to the liver, to the whole body of those individuals. Mm -hmm. If instead we were able to sort of have a huge catalog of drugs where you can sort of mix and match exactly which ones you need, to target those three genes in that pathway with only a minute amount, I think the side effects can be decreased dramatically. So that's sort of what precision medicine is about. Mm -hmm. Now, personalized medicine means uh, a lot more. It means not just being able to sort of identify exactly what we should change for every disorder, but understand how every person should be treated differently. And again, the economics of personalized medicine are right now extremely daunting because everybody says, so which company is going to invest a billion dollars developing a drug for me? But I think the dynamics should be thought of very differently. Namely, yes, there are, you know, six, seven billion people in the planet, but there's only 20,000 genes and there's only so many cell types in the human body and there's only so many ways that we can modulate those. So if instead we start thinking of a library of compounds which can individually be tested for safety. And then if the FDA is thinking of the clinical trial at the level of the algorithm of how we're going to be combining these compounds and how we're going to be rationalizing the identification of exactly the treatment that every person needs, mm -hmm. then you can basically mix and match from these catalogs to create a treatment at almost no extra cost for each person. Hmm. And that's what personalized medicine will be about. And of course, genomic medicine means that some of that personalization will come from your own genome. Hmm. So in my view, it's not just a genome, it's of course the entire environmental information and the meta information and the, the exposome, if you wish, of that person, which has to be combined with the genome to truly understand the personalization of the treatment. Namely, every patient would not only have access to their whole genome, mm -hmm. but possibly have a lot of information from wearables, a lot of information about their sleeping patterns, their walking patterns, exercise patterns, movement, eye movement, body movement, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. As well as possibly a blood biopsy mm -hmm. that can tell you about metabolites, can tell you about you know blood biomarkers of a lot of inaccessible tissues and organs that you will now have more information about, and then truly make a decision about, number one, diagnosis, mm -hmm. but also number two, prognosis. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. What does the genome tell you about what you might have tomorrow? And what does your current blood draw tell you about a disease that might be developing that might not manifest yet? Mm -hmm. So instead of treating the symptoms, we can start treating the causes. Mm. Instead of responding, we can start anticipating. Okay. And again, everybody's wondering about the, the cost on the healthcare system and the society, but we have to embrace the fact that we're all in this together. And if we can decrease healthcare costs for one out of a thousand people by, I don't know, a million dollars, this is worth a thousand dollars. So in other mm -hmm. words, you know, even if these treatments are costing us a thousand dollars for every person, and even if only one out of a thousand people gets that benefit, the math still works out. Mm -hmm. But my, my goal is that these uh, interventions, that these, that these measurements will cost so much less than $1,000, that it's going to be $10 or $100. And then the moment you spread that out across the whole healthcare system, everyone gets better, and a few people benefit dramatically more, mm -hmm. and therefore society as a whole benefits dramatically more. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking as you're talking about the so-called like designer drugs in cancer that really attack a particular cancer and like a chemotherapy drug that doesn't go after your hair and things like that where they've had great advances in it, but it's still on the personal level can be incredibly effective with one patient and not effective at all on the other. So really it's kind of taking that precision and that personal and putting it together for the best health benefit of all. I completely agree. And in my view, it's really the combination of understanding the genetic makeup of each person, understanding the genetic makeup of that tumor, mm -hmm. and understanding the current status of your immune system. The most effective therapies are really combination therapies, because you're not just going after one thing, which when allows, which then allows the cancer to sort of find ways around it and evolve out of that one treatment, but it's using a combination. And the most effective uh, way in the last few years has truly been to use the immune system as your friend and as your partner to basically help the immune system of those individuals fight the tumor. One of the hallmarks of cancer that has really been recognized recently is the fact that the, the tumor is actually manipulating your immune system to escape evasion. It's basically telling the immune system, oh, everything is fine, don't worry, nothing's going on here. It's hiding itself from the immune system and so on and so forth. The most effective treatment, which we are currently, you know, um, putting a big focus on in, in our lab, is really the ability to train the immune cells of the person to make the cancer visible to those immune cells, to stimulate mm. the response in a very sort of precise way. And there are new companies out there that are basically trying to sort of build vaccines that are personalized for each individual's tumor basically say what are the recognizable features of that tumor mm -hmm. and then can we use these features to now help the immune system so i think it's going to be a multi-pronged approach so on one hand traditional chemo on the other hand traditional drugs and on the third hand how do we help the immune system fight the tumor great so you are very well known for co-leading the roadmap epigenomics project to create a map of the human epigenome can you talk about that project and why it's so important? In the same way that the human genome is a foundation for all of genetic studies, in my view, the human epigenome is the foundation for all functional studies of how are the cells functioning. How are they using this genome in every single cell type differently? So if you look at your body, there are hundreds of different cell types. There's so many different tissues, and every one of those tissues has a, comple a complex mix of, you know, dozens of different cell types. How is that possible? Every one of your cells has exactly the same genome. It's mm -hmm. an automaton that is running exactly the same code. How can the exact same code lead to a neuron, and to a hair cell, and to a retina cell, and to your uh, heart muscle and your blood circulating in those veins? The reason this is possible is because a different subset of the human genome book is being used by every one of our professional cell types. To build an analogy, it's as if every profession on the planet received the same encyclopedia of 23 volumes, which contains all of human knowledge, regardless of your profession. Mm -hmm. And some people will need the plumbing books, 
and some people will need or the plumbing chapters and some people will need the nuclear physics chapters and some people will need the ballet chapters and so on and so forth and what the epigenome does is mark up those chapters for every one of those professions so that the liver cell has bookmarks for every chapter that's related to liver function. And the neuronal cell has bookmarks for all of the chapters related to neuronal functions. So that's what the human epigenome is about. So what we did in the Roadmap Epigenomics Project is try to systematically understand the human epigenome across hundreds of different cell types. And we've just posted a paper online a few months ago uh, giving the next generation of that map. So in the Roadmap Epigenomics Project, we had mapped 117 different cell types, mm -hmm. 111 uh, different cell types, 127 total, uh, by combining with the ENCODE project at the time. Mm -hmm. And we now have 830 different human cell types that we have now mapped and released to the, to the community. Wow. So we're getting a lot of feedback from folks who are already using this map to now start understanding hundreds of different disorders. Because it's only by understanding what is the circuitry of every one of those cells from this epigenome mapping that we can then understand how are the genetic variants that are associated with all these diseases mm -hmm. manifesting in the human body. What are the cell types that they're affected? I gave you the, the example of Alzheimer's disease and all those genetic variants localizing in immune cells. How did we find that out? Mm. Through the Roadmap Epigenomics Project. Because we had mapped all these 111 cell types, we could now start asking which one of those contains the genetic variants that underlie Alzheimer's disease. We could do the same thing with Alzheimer's, with uh, psychiatric disorders, and then we're finding brain uh, and neurons. We're, we can do the same thing with you know, heart disease, and we're finding heart muscle, and you know, we're, we can do the same thing with you know, lung function and liver function and immune disorders and so on and so forth. And we're finding in every single case what are the cell types that appear to be underlying these disorders. Mm -hmm. So these maps are basically both allowing us to map human disease, genetic variants, but also allowing us to paint the circuitry of how are those genetic variants connected to their target genes. Got it. And thank you for bringing up ENCO, because one of my questions was going to be the relationship between the genome and the epigenome, but I think you really addressed that. Tell me a little bit more about the ENCODE project. So the ENCODE project basically stands for Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, so ENCODE. And um, I, I like to uh, um, go back to this joke that uh, Eric Lander uh, made when he, he, he um, was speaking at the Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. Um, where uh, he had to describe uh, the human genome in seven words. Uh, and he basically uh, used those words. He said, genome, bought the book, hard to read. <laughs> so what the ENCODE project is about is this hard to read part. Okay. So how do we now systematically understand every nucleotide in the human genome? Yeah. And what the ENCODE project is trying to do is carry out in a very organized fashion, in a very systematic fashion, a very coordinated and um, sort of common fashion, a series of experiments that we now know are extremely informative for mapping the function of the human genome in all of these different cell types. And that's, that's what the ENCODE project is about. It's basically trying to build an encyclopedia of what are all the functional elements in these three billion bases. Only a small fraction of that genome is in fact useful. Mm -hmm. Only about 20% or so appears to be containing these very precise gene regulatory elements. How do you now map all of that? Well, you have to map every nucleotide. You have to do these hundreds of experiments. And instead of every lab doing a slightly different version of that experiment, which would make integration very difficult, the NIH basically said, let's do all these experiments systematically oh. with a small number of assays and a small number of teams that will coordinate with each other Mm -hmm. to make sure that the data is as clean and as reproducible as possible. Yes, it's a huge endeavor. Yes, it's very difficult. But if we do it in a haphazard kind of way, the end result to the community will not be as clean. Right. It's not like genome sequencing where in the end there's a letter there or not. Mm -hmm. It's you know very difficult to sort of make sure that all these experiments are in fact compatible with each other and comparable with each other and easily integrated. 
And that's what the ENCODE project is about. Wow, that's fascinating. So um, this relationship between the human genome and the epigenome, how is this important in your research? I like to think of the epigenome as the great integrator. There's a very, very large gap between genetic variation and disease. For every complex trait, there are thousands of genetic differences scattered across these three billion bases that are contributing minutely to this disorder. If you look at Alzheimer's disease, yes, there are less than 100 strong effects, but there are thousands of statistically reproducible weak effects. Mm. And if you now ask how are those genetic variants mapping to disease, this is a very, very large gap. What the human epigenome allows us to do and what all of these molecular profiles allow us to do is basically bridge that gap and ask how are genetics first affecting the epigenome? And how is the epigenome affecting gene expression patterns? And how are these gene expression patterns affecting endophenotypes, the intermediate phenotypes associated mm -hmm. with disease, for example, your lipid levels? Mm. And how are those then affecting disease? So the epigenome gathers information from the genome. It is influenced from the genome, by the genome. But it is also influenced by the environment. So it integrates information from both genetics and environment. Hmm. It is also influenced by disease. It can reflect the disease status. It can also reflect the expression pattern of different genes and the exposure to different environmental stimuli and the immune system functionality. So this great integrator is basically integrating all this information across all of the different processes, telling us both about genetics and environment and disease status. So by systematically mapping the epigenome, we can now understand how to bridge this gap mm. and how to in integrate both environmental and genetic hints to enable us to predict disease and to understand disease status and to understand disease progression and to even understand treatment progression as the patients are moving through a particular course of treatment. Interesting. So you actually can predict disease? To some degree, yes. And that's where I want to go back to common variants and also rare variants. Common variants are common in the population. They are maybe at 5% frequency, sometimes 20%, 40% frequency. This genetic variant that I mentioned earlier, RS1421085, which is associated with FTO and obesity, mm -hmm. that genetic variant is at 40% frequency in Europe, 44% frequency in Southeast Asia. It sounds like a disease variant, but no, it actually used to be a beneficial variant. When food was scarce, it actually made sense to store all the calories rather than to burn them away. Oh. That genetic variant only became detrimental after World War II. Mm -hmm. If you look at longitudinal profiles of individuals who are carrying this genetic variant before and after the war, mm. you will see that before the war there was like no association with obesity. It's only after the war when everybody started having office jobs and walking less and eating at McDonald's oh. that suddenly FTO became a major plague for our society. Oh, interesting. And it's always a combination of genetics and environment. So for these complex traits, there are thousands of genetic variants, and each of them is contributing only a small amount. So by knowing your top five genetic variants associated with obesity, I really can't say much about your risk. But if instead I look at thousands at a time, and that's what polygenic risk scores are doing, or PRS, I can then start predicting to some degree, your risk for the disease. And when I say to some degree, well, it depends on the disease. For most diseases, it's going to be less than 5%. For some diseases, it's going to be a lot more. So that's for polygenic risk score and for common variants. Then there's the whole other aspect, which plays a much bigger role for personalized medicine, mm -hmm. of the rare variants. So rare variants tend to have much stronger effects or to actually put it a little differently in causal terms, variants that have strong effects tend to be kept at low frequency. Why is that? Because if something contributes dramatically to schizophrenia, the impact this will have on the fitness of mm. a person, on the number of offspring, 
that that person can successfully put into the world and the number of offspring that these kids will have as they grow up is dramatically altered. Mm -hmm. If you live in a family with dramatic mental disorders, chances are there's going to be fewer of you down the generations than in other families that don't have these disorders. Mm -hmm. So over generations, genetic variants that have strong effects tend to be kept at low frequency by evolution. Mm-hmm. Genetic variants that have only modest effects can rise to, to high frequency just by drift or sometimes by selection, mm-hmm. as I mentioned for the case of FTO. So being able to predict disease means being able to combine both common and rare variants to then say something about what's going to happen in the lifetime of an individual when you first see their genome mm-hmm. at conception or at birth or at any point in their life. If you now combine that with biomarkers mm-hmm. that basically tell you about you know how that you know how the blood is circulating what your heart rate is and all kinds of other things if you combine that with family history if you combine that with i don't know reading through the email of a person or understanding their google searches mm-hmm. or looking at their facebook profile and so on and so forth then oh yeah you can predict disease you can predict disease very well hmm. and it's by integrating all of that information that we will then be able to not carry just carry out better diagnosis, mm-hmm. but also carry out better prognosis. Interesting. So, like these kids, like Twenty Three and Me, and those, I mean, they are saying they can provide insights into disease um, based on your genetics or DNA that you submit. What what is I mean, is are they accurate? I and mean, what are they looking at? And so, I mentioned this complete picture of you know your medical history, your family history, your uh, biomarkers your common variants and your rare variants. Mm-hmm. 23andMe is only looking at the common variants. Okay. And that's a small part of this body of information that you would need in order to be able to predict disease. So for most disorders, they're not going to be very predictive. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. What's great about 23andMe is that it really raises people's awareness of the genome, of genetic information, and the importance of the genome for understanding your ancestry understanding your overall health and Mm -hmm. so and so forth and yes it's kind of fun to be able to do that and it's kind of fun to put it in the hands of consumers but at the same time we should be very cautious because some people might read this information and then misinterpret it they might say oh you have a 1.5 fold increased risk uh, for this but in fact this only has a 0.3 percent risk to start with Mm -hmm. or you have now a 0.05% higher risk for this. Should you, should you worry about that? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends. You know, most likely no. Mm-hmm. But I think people have a hard time with probabilities. Understanding that something can happen at 1% frequency. Some people interpret this as, oh, it could happen. It could just not happen. There's two choices, 50% each. <laughs> So you're off by a factor of 50. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like the, the way that most people understand statistics is actually quite rudimentary. And that's just a flaw of human cognition. Basically, we tend to overemphasize the risk of rare events. You know, every time you go swimming, you're afraid of a shark eating you. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes you forget to put mosquito repellent on when you go to the forest. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. mosquito bites kill millions more people than sharks every year that's true and yet in our risk assessment we're so focused on these extremely rare events Mm -hmm. and that's just you know flaws in human cognition (laughs) (laughs) so the problem with these flaws is that when a company then goes out and says hey figure out your risk for x and y and z and you see that these probabilities and they're being very honest about those probabilities many people will misinterpret those That's the first problem. The second problem is that the science is not quite there yet. Even if you take all of the common genetic variants, we just haven't done all the studies to be able to sort of really predict how all of them combined will lead to your disease predisposition. Mm -hmm. And the third, as I mentioned earlier, is that it's a very partial test. It's one component. So it's still at the early stages, but it's definitely on the correct path Mm -hmm. to using more information to better inform our decisions. Great. Why are genetics so important to the pharmaceutical industry? What genetics gives you is very unique. So we're all talking about sort of predicting um, disease. And yes, genetics can, you know, in some cases predict disease, but to only a modest amount. 
compared to all this other information that I mentioned earlier. But what genetics gives you that this other information does not give you, and what makes genetics so unique, is causality. What does causality mean? Those individuals who drink coffee also tend to live longer. Is the coffee causing them to live longer? Or is it that those individuals who drink more coffee have better jobs? They can afford coffee. They can afford also better health care. Maybe it's the fact that they have a better socioeconomic status that makes them live longer, not the coffee. Maybe the coffee is just an indication mm -hmm. of the fact that they have a better socioeconomic status and therefore an indication that they're going to live longer. So that's the difference between correlation and causation. So every time those studies come out that say coffee makes you live longer and you read, it's actually just correlation. Mm -hmm. Turns out that if you drink coffee already, you're probably going to live longer anyway. But what genetic information gives you is much, much richer than that. And the reason for that is that you inherit those genetic variants before you're born. And those genetic variants can tell you about disease causation. So, so what these genetic variants are allowing you to do is not to say, hey, you have a higher risk for that, but it's actually understanding the mechanism of the disease. Why is that important? Because understanding mechanism, understanding that this genetic variant even if it only causes a 1% change in the disease, but if you know that that genetic variant has a causal path to the disease, mm. then you know that if you intervene in whatever that genetic variant is affecting, then you will have a causal implication of the disease. And causality means that uh, the, the drug that you're going to build now mm -hmm. is much more likely to succeed. So there have been studies that basically say which drugs succeed more or less. And what they have found is that one of the best predictors of whether a drug will succeed is if there was genetic support for that drug. So the reason why the pharmaceutical industry cares about genetics so much is because they can save billions and billions of dollars mm -hmm. by increasing the success rate of their drugs ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. So by going after the right targets in the first place, namely those that are supported by genetic information, those are those that are supported by these mechanistic models that we're discovering through genetics, then we can be much more confident that the drug will succeed. And that's why we're collaborating with so many different pharmaceutical companies right now, because they want to use our models to understand genetics. Genetics is wonderful because it tells you about causality. It tells you that this genetic variant will have some causal impact on the disease. And what makes genetics powerful is that it doesn't matter how the genetic variant acts. You can predict its impact will be there. So that's the power of it. it you, regardless of the mechanism, genetics works. You can look at genetic variation, how it correlates with disease, and get causal uh, relationships back. The downside is exactly that. That, yes, after you figured out the association, you have no idea how it works. And that's what our group is trying to do. What we're trying to do by this massive data profiling, this massive data integration and the systematic validation, is it predict the mechanism through which those genetic variants are acting. So that when the pharmaceutical industry wants to target obesity, they're not going to say, let's go after the brain. They're not going to say, let's go after the muscles. They're going to say, let's go after the adipocytes, after the fat. Let's go after this pathway, this gene, this cell type, that developmental stage, and so on and so forth. Huh. And that's what genetics gives you. Genetics gives you insights into the mechanism of disease and it gives you much higher confidence that what you manipulate is causal. And to look at the correlation versus causation question, if you see that immune cells are going up for Alzheimer's patients, I don't know, should you bring them down? Are they causing the disease? Are they just correlated? Do they have no role? Or maybe are they fighting the disease? Are they going up because they're fighting the disease? So if you see that firemen are always correlated with fire, are they the arsonists or are they your best help? Mm -hmm. If you're sort of looking from space and you're like, ooh, there's firemen every time there's fire, let's get them out of there. Fire might just get worse. Mm -hmm. So that's what correlation versus causation gives you by knowing exactly where to intervene and how in order to causally affect the disease you can increase the chance of therapeutic success dramatically. That's great. So you mentioned you were working with some pharmaceutical companies. 
Are you working with just pharmaceuticals or other companies? And, and how does your group work with industry? We have several collaborations with industry, and they usually take the form of joint research projects. Basically, the goal is to build resources that they need. And there's no better way to have an impact than to truly understand what does the pharmaceutical industry need for that disorder. Because, you know, if you just stay among academics, you might be misled into thinking that these are just the only important things that we should be focusing on. It turns out that the pharmaceutical industry might not care about them at all. And the reason why I'm so excited to work with your group and sort of reach out to industry and to pharma is because understanding their needs means that we can have a much higher impact on patients by solving the problems, by understanding the needs that they have, we can basically have a much more relevant research program. Of course, you have to have both basic research and applied research, but if we can drive the needs of the basic research, the needs that the basic research is addressing based on the pressing problems in the field right now, we will have a much better impact. So we were gonna generate these resources anyway, but understanding which resources are the most useful to them allows us to prioritize them. And what is the advantage to them? The advantage to them is that they can be part of that creative process. They can have early access as we're building these resources, understanding that you know we may need to change them if we find mistakes before we release them to the rest of the world. But they're very open to the fact that, yes, even their competitors will have access to the same resources because everything we do would, will eventually be published. But by being part of the creative process, by being part of the discovery process, they can figure out also how internally they can repeat that process for many other resources that they're building internally. And I think there's a growing push in the industry right now to bring more resources together, to build these tools together, to basically say, instead of you building your, I don't know, master immune map of how cancer interacts with the immune system, and me building the same map with slightly different data, and that other person and that other company building the same map with slightly different data, let's all just collaborate in a pre-competitive kind of way. And then, after we've built the best possible map, we will all benefit, society will benefit, academia and industry will benefit, hospitals will benefit, and then each of us can then go off and compete in who, who builds the better drugs, but let's start with common biological knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that has created an environment and an ecosystem where industry, academia, uh, and hospitals, and government, mm -hmm. like the NIH, can all come together and say, listen guys, we're all in this together. Let's just pool our resources and be build better infrastructure for all of us. Yeah. And that's what a lot of these um, collaborative projects are about. We want to benefit the whole world, yet giving them early access, You know, having weekly meetings, learning from each other, collaborating closely. And we have much to gain, and they have much to gain. So, and very often, collaborating with academia means that they will generate the same resources at a tiny fraction of the cost because this is what we do for a living, because we can leverage all these other tools and all these other things that we have built to basically make the next resource even better. Mm -hmm. And for us, it means that our data will be better, our tools will be better because somebody will immediately be using it rather than just having to wait until somebody contacts us a year later saying, actually, this is not very helpful. Here's what we would have liked instead. We can do that from the onset. That's so the more uh, you, know, you, you can build your alliances program to include these companies and sort of the more we can sort of really help them recognize the huge value of industry and academia working side by side, I think the better it will be for society and for medicine and for the whole world. That's great. That's fantastic. Now, you and I are both here nursing a hot cup of tea in this uh, January flu season. So I have to ask about the evolution of diseases and variants. And similar, like I heard the flu vaccine was developed thinking one strain was going to go, but it's actually another. Does your work address any of that? This is such an important topic. So it's extremely important to understand that disease is not just about genetics. It's the interplay between genetics and environment. And if the environment changes, the genetic impact might completely disappear, or it might actually be reversed. I mentioned earlier how this FTO, genetic locus, had no association with obesity, you know, 100 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's only 50 years ago that it actually started having an association. That's because the environment changed. In the same way, our body is not isolated from hundreds of other organisms that are living within us. So within our gut, there's a human microbiome with so many different bacteria that are sometimes beneficial, sometimes detrimental. It's a whole ecosystem that we're carrying around. There are more bacterial cells in your body than there are human cells. As you walk around, you're mostly a carrier of bacteria. And along for the ride come a few human cells that make (laughs) up you. So um, we have to constantly embrace this fact that we are co-inhabiting the space around us with thousands of different types of environmental exposures including viruses, including bacteria, including, you know, uh, so many different microorganisms. And I think that uh, what we need to understand is not just the human genome, but also the genome of all those other species Mm. and the interplay between not just our cellular circuits, but also their cellular circuits. And the viral circuits very often go through the human host. They go through the vector, the carrier that brings them to us whether that's air or whether it's a mosquito and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. we have to build not just self-contained gene regulatory networks, Mm -hmm. but also trans-organism and trans-kingdom regulatory networks that incorporate the viruses and the bacteria and, you know, the the full set of metabolites and chemicals and exposures that we have and so on and so forth. So that's very much where the world is heading, but Mm -hmm. it's only very early steps in that direction. Okay. Will your work help to develop better treatments or even cures for diseases such as diabetes and Alzheimer's? Well, that's exactly what we're trying to achieve. And I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that this will come a lot faster uh, than the field is currently anticipating. Basically, we're, you know, we're currently working on this you know, many, many years uh, horizon for when our uh, therapies will actually, when, when our new sort of circuitry will actually lead to new therapies. But I'm very optimistic, basically seeing the rate at which research is being translated. Uh, and uh, as soon as we write a paper, my friends forward me emails basically saying, hey, your paper has been circulating within a pharmaceutical company. You know, the CEO is sending an email saying, hey, pay attention to this. This just came out. And uh, when, when our FTO paper came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, we had a meeting with someone from pharma just like five days later. And we're starting to describe in general terms what we were doing. And he's like, wow, that sounds like just like a paper that uh, we, I was reading last week. I was like, which paper is that? He's like, so-and-so. I'm like, oh, that's our paper. <laughs> he had received this paper from five different email threads, basically saying, pay attention to this. This is, this is very important for us, uh-huh. from five different sources. And this is so exciting. It basically says that academia is having a huge impact in industry even when we don't know it. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't had that meeting with him, I would have no idea that this was happening. And he didn't even know it was me. Huh. He, he thought it was just like some unrelated paper. He's like, wow, yeah, are you familiar with this group? I'm like, that's us. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I think that um, both the methodologies that we're using and also the insights that we're making and that we're gaining will dramatically transform therapies dramatically transform our approach even to new therapies so uh, the best way we can do that right now is to disseminate the results as widely as possible but also work with a few select partners that can help us stay honest Mm -hmm. that can basically (coughs) help us understand whether we're really achieving this goal of enabling them or whether we're missing the mark and we're sort of generating resources that yeah, not, not everybody will use. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, we have to have both. We have to have the wide dissemination as broad as possible to everything we're doing in ways that make it much more usable, much more uh, understandable, uh, just so easy to just build on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, work with partners that will constantly tell us, I don't understand this. What do you actually mean? Mm-hmm. Or that will tell us, I understand it this way. Is this the right way? And we can say, oops, we were not super clear. And let's change that for now the whole world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of the impact of uh, truly transforming not just an industry right now, but also the whole field of therapeutics 
and ultimately our societal impact of sort of really approaching disease and approaching our understanding of medicine in a completely new way and much more rational way, much more data-driven way. Well, your, your work is amazing and has so much impact uh, for our world. We've talked a lot about the things that could happen or might happen. Kind of on a closing note, what else would you think the future would hold in this? So thank you so much for the comments. I think uh, what I want to emphasize is that really this is a huge team effort and a team effort not just here at MIT, but across many, many different institutions, that basically the number of players that are contributing to every paper we write is huge. And this is through building on the work of giants, basically building on papers that are previously published before us, learning just so much, which is constantly disseminating, building on resources that many, many other groups are, 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 are building, but also collaborating so closely with doctors, the generosity of patients, for making their samples available, the generosity of families for making post-mortem samples available from their, from their loved ones to really help science, the incredible creativity of our students who are really the drivers behind all of these discoveries. And it's really just, uh, it takes a village. It takes really a huge effort with people playing very different roles to really, you know, create all these, uh, you know, quote-unquote, children all the papers that we're writing, all the discoveries that we're making. It really takes a village to sort of make them grow and make them have an impact. So what does the, fu the future hold? They, I mean, my, my view is that, number one, a lot more collaboration, a lot more interdisciplinary collaboration. I think this is where the field is really heading, and I think this makes my day so much fun. Working with people who know things that are just so different from what I know makes me feel like a kid. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly, like, bright-eyed soaking in information about how the world works, about sort of knowledge that they have that I couldn't even dream of finding in a textbook. And uh, better understanding of disease, uh, sort of really fundamentally, you know, sometimes throwing away the textbook uh, view of some diseases and just starting from data, starting from a completely renewed understanding, much more modern understanding mm -hmm. of these data sets. In some cases, reinterpreting old data in a very kind of new way and sort of saying, well, this is actually what was, you know, causing it. Mm. I mean, going back to the example of FTO, somebody had knocked out the gene, had deleted the genetic segment and said, oh, great, this gene clearly has that function. But it turns out what they had done is deleted the circuitry that was then affecting those other genes. Mm. And that perfectly explains their experiments. So even though we had an experiment that was showing that ablation of that gene leads to that phenotype, mm -hmm. that gene is not involved at all because something else was there. So again, being able to sort of embrace the continuum of science, the fact that we can sort of publish as much information as possible so that others reading our papers down, down the road, maybe 10 years down the road, can basically say, aha, they misinterpreted their data. It's actually that other pathway. And so on and so forth. And, and of course, building all those experiments that can allow us to validate that what our computational causal models are showing are, in, are indeed truly causal. Mm -hmm. So basically, number one, a lot more collaboration. Number two, a lot deeper understanding of the disease. And number three, a lot more integration of the genome in all these components. Mm. Better integration of sort of truly DNA-based knowledge on every aspect of science. And then the last thing is really something that I was saying earlier, understanding that we're all in this together, that if we do a better job to improve the health of everyone, then everyone will benefit, not just, hey, you know, who cares about this person who's now going to have to pay a million dollars? No. Our healthcare system is paying for those million dollars. It's not just some random person. It's your own tax dollars that are going to treating much more severe cases mm -hmm. than if you're do, we're doing a better job at prognosis, a better job at diagnosis for everyone. So we have to embrace the fact that these are overall healthcare costs for all of us. And if we improve the health of every person in our society, we are all better off because diseases won't spread as widely because the knowledge gained will help me and will help my family and will help my loved ones when we get to that stage. Mm -hmm. Because you don't know what the future might hold for you and your health and your family by supporting a much more inclusive healthcare system where we are really building these genomic resources for everyone and 
distributing the cost across all of society, we will save so much money in the end. So in, in the end, not only are we better human beings, but we're actually we're better off economically mm-hmm. because we are not waiting until the symptoms are huge to address them and the healthcare cost is huge on all of society, but instead making a new future where we can better understand the molecular base of disease, mm-hmm. where we're not going to be giving the wrong drug to the wrong people, where we're not going to be you know, uh, completely misdiagnosing uh, conditions until years, years down the road. Uh, and I think that future is really a bright one. It's a future of more knowledge. It's a future of better health. It's a future of a more inclusive society. And it's a future where, you know, I think our children can grow up understanding exactly what's causing their illnesses Mm -hmm. rather than taking wild guesses and throwing bazookas at it. It's really making it personalized, making it much more precise, and making it much more effective. That's great. Well, thank you for all the work that you do, and thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much, Laurie, and thank you for all the work that you're doing to sort of really help industry and academia come together and really create a better society for all of us. Thank you.